You're listening to She Bake, a podcast for and about women in Australian beekeeping. Find us on Instagram, she underscore beak, that's S-H-E underscore B-E-E-K, and on Facebook, She Bake. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm great, Joe. How are you? Yeah, good. So who are we speaking with this week? This week we are meeting um, Anna and Anna's from Bukawarung Apri and there's a really great story about where that name comes from. Uh, Anna lives out in the Western Volcanic Plains area in Victoria and has a lovely beekeeping business and lots of interesting services working through her business. So it was a real pleasure to talk to Anna about botany and bunyips. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anna. Hi, how are you? Good, nice to meet you. Oh yeah, it's good to good to finally see you and, and speak to you rather than just type and text. Oh, likewise. <laughs> Thank you for um, accepting my invitation. It's very exciting. So you're up on the Gold Coast. Yes, and I'm I'm super disorganised, and I I run around doing a hundred things at the same time, and yeah, um, and so I'm just I've been listening back to one of our previous podcasts, thinking, oh gosh, I sound like I sound like a really disorganised beekeeper, and and I probably am pretty disorganised as a beekeeper, <laughs> trying to stay on <laughs> trying to stay on top of all the things because because the temperatures are so warm, like it was. 8.30 this morning when you were having about four degrees, we were having 21. So wow. because it's warm, the bees are just going, going, going. Yeah. Um, yeah. They don't really stop where you are, do they? It's more the, the heat that peg, the heat and the humidity that pegs them back more than the winter temperatures. Well, managing those, those high humidities in February is a different story. But at the moment, I mean, spring, mm. spring starts in early July. But, yeah. Well, actually, no, we, we kind of just go straight into summer in early July. You pretty much do, don't you? Yeah. If, if you're talking to someone in the UK, they'd say, what do you mean you have winter? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's very tropical. But what's going on in your apries at the moment? So at the moment, we're coming out of, it, it's um, what I affectionately term the season of muck and so we'll have rainy days you know it's not cold enough to snow normally um the sun sometimes shines the wind blows a lot it's very much wind chill even today it's forecast to be about 16 degrees but it's really windy so you step outside and it's a wind chill of about six mm. So that's quite challenging. Um, on the plains, it's a, just a classic weather system. Uh, so now we are in sprinter, which is that cusp of it's the 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 uh, transition from winter to spring because it's not an abrupt change where you get a bit more sun and a bit more milder days and everything starts growing but it's still cold and rainy. And so the bees 
there were some people who dived into their bees on Saturday because it was the first relatively warm day we've had for quite a while. It was about 18. I resisted the urge because the Sunday um, it was back down to about 12 and just really difficult for them to recover from a full-on inspection with that transition in temperature. So we're just on that, on that cusp of the hive starting to get ahead, um, first inspections for spring, and then making some assessments about which bees have got through winter really well, which hives perhaps were acquired from doing um, rescues or, or hive removals in late summer and into autumn where the colony may not have had plentiful reserves to get through winter because they're a late season rescue and possibly merging them with other stronger hives. And so have had um, uh, probably a bit before Easter, after about three or four weeks of isolation way back then, <laughs> people got, uh, got stuck into their home reno projects because they're at home. Yeah. And there may have been bees in someone's wall or uh, in their shed or something that had been there for a while and suddenly there was a new deck going in or they were going to demolish an old outhouse. So the calls were coming in thick and fast. We've got these bees. Can you come and remove these bees? So there's a few bees doing quarantine here at home before they can go to any other hive sites. And... Um, Yes, just getting that slightly itchy feet feeling that you want to, you know, start actually keeping bees again instead of constantly checking and, and hefting and, you know, doing the external observations, which I, I hold um, in quite high value to really um, learn how to read the hive from the outside mm. and understanding as much as you can from the outside without having to be excessively disruptive to the colony in, in opening the hive. But having said that, obviously, you know, regular inspections and, and management is really important. So that's sort of where we're at. We're just teetering on that, you know, someone firing the starting gun and saying, go, spring's on. <laughs> Almost there. Almost there. And I understand you're a second generation beekeeper. So was there someone previously in your family who you were learning with or learning from? Yes. My dad, Peter, is uh, a hobby beekeeper and has had kept bees. I can't, I can't remember there ever not being bees. The bee, he's had bees for, for quite a few decades. And they started as a lot of beekeeping enterprises do, you start with one hive and then I think after about 10 years, he had about 20 hives and it was getting a bit busy and there was, you know, honey for sale left, right and centre and back when you sort of could just sell honey however you liked. And so he downsized to about half a dozen hives and that was that was something that he was really still still doing but starting to feel that perhaps the bees were becoming a bit too much work he may have been 70 by this point late 60s 
And so I said, oh, I'd love to have some bees. And speaking as a, a scientist and a biologist, it was the actual bees that held a lot of fascination for me as opposed to the honey side of things. And it was, oh, this is probably nearly 10 years ago. And so women just weren't really a thing in beekeeping so much then. And I suppose I encountered um, a few raised eyebrows, even from my dad. It's like, you want bees? What do you mean you want bees? And there's probably just a, a hint then of uh, sort of father-daughter rivalry <laughs> as to, okay, so Anna wants bees, right? Suddenly dad's all interested in having bees again and keeping bees. So the hive duly arrived on the back of the ute and it was placed you know, you know, very prominent spot in the in the garden, and we we're on um, on a rural property, so space wasn't an issue. Um, and even had to send away to Britain to get a beekeeping suit that was small enough at that time, because you just could buy, you know, large and triple extra large for men. Mm. <laughs> you couldn't get small size bee suits in Australia, not that I could find anyway. And this hive became it became somewhat of an addiction and I was researching as much as I could. And I say that in the scientific sense of researching, reading lots of papers and um, understanding about research into bee colony behaviour and so on, as opposed to doing my own research on Google. And just came to really learn so much and just love what I was learning. And then being able to observe the bees in my hive and try and translate some of that into what I was seeing in the hive. Um, and uh, so <laughs> that was one hive. Then that became two because I did a split. And then um, dad decided to offload another couple of hives. So then I had four. And then all of a sudden I had another two and that was six. And it was still just very much a hobby. It was, you know, oh, so you've got bees, kind of, oh, that's interesting. Um, and the flow hive was just coming to market. Mm. So that suddenly, yes, extended a whole lot more conversations around bees simply because people realised that, oh, so you can just, you know, turn the tap and honey comes out. I said, well, yes and no. But, yeah, suddenly it became something in the front of people's consciousness and interest and awareness and um, the various controversies around the fake honey mm -hmm. scandals a few years ago. So, yes, it was, um, it just, it just grew on me, to be so honest. You went from, from one to two to six to how many now? As a, as a uh, got about two dozen. And then that will probably consolidate down by a few um, with some merging. Depending but how they've weathered then, over winter. Yeah, then with spring coming and um, I do call outs for swarms, of what I call bee rescues. So that's, that can be quite busy. Mm. You get calls often first thing in the morning. So the ute is always packed the night before, ready to go. <laughs> oh, you're so prepared. <laughs> oh, so prepared. <laughs> Not like me, I just run around and run run around like a mad person chasing after my bees. 
But um, Anna, I wanted to pick up on what you mentioned previously, you know, um, your background as a scientist, you're a botanist. I am, yes, so, in, that, in that very classical sense um, where it, it's, not, it's not horticulture and it's not um, growing and cultivating sense. It's, it's um, botany in terms of having undertaken research um, in the academic setting on different evolutionary relationships in some of the um, very iconic Australian plants in the Mertaceae family, which is the family of plants that includes, to most people would be familiar with eucalypts, um, tea trees, paper barks, um, and then some of those really pretty um, heathland type species that are common over in the southwest of WA and around the Grampians in Victoria, where you have um, small shrubby, but very pretty and often profusely covered in blooms like thryptamine and beckia and um, calytrix and others. So yes, I spent a lot of time dissecting floral specimens and analyzing them using electron microscopy and taking really cool photos and then trying to understand better how these different um, plant groups were related in an evolutionary sense. And then also um, was comparing my work to genetic work that was being done in Sydney at the time. And so yeah, we had some, had some really awesome findings around how better to understand which groups of plants were more related um, genetically and often as a result of being geographically dispersed. Um, and so I still often keep a lookout for my PhD plants. <laughs> if I'm out on a bushwalk or something, it's like, oh, there's one of my plants. And yeah, so that then, and, and because I'd had a prior to that quite a, a generalist botanical um, science subject um, matter when I was doing my science degree. I've also studied ecology and um, mycology, which is the study of fungi um, and other related disciplines. So following on from my academic career and teaching at the University of Melbourne for quite a few years, I then sort of stepped sideways and took up a position with Greening Australia based in Western Victoria. And that involved a lot more ecological science and landscape analysis and planning and um, restoration ecology, but in a very different focus to a research and laboratory setting because it's really all about people. Ultimately, it can be about the trees and it can be about the threatened frog or the, um, the corridor that you're trying to create, but ultimately you're really connecting people. And so there's a lot of community engagement, um, workshops, all sorts of amazing stuff going on. And that's where I saw it all come together with the bees, I think, eventually. Bees yeah. Put it. They're really, really good at bringing people and communities together as are, mm. as are plants and flowers and gardens, mm. all of these things. But bees especially, I think, um, 
bring people together and and like you said, it sparks someone's interest that you're, oh, you're a hobby backyard beekeeper. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's nice. But there's so much more to it. And I'm sure that your background in having studied the plant species and working with the ecology, that this all just feeds really well into your, into your beekeeping practice. So I, I'm really keen to how, um, how that's shaped and informed what you do with your business as well. Yeah, it, it, um, it came together, I suppose, as one of those um, almost like a light bulb moment at the time. This was about halfway through 2018 that I'd had a change of employment circumstances and then just got thinking where you're thrown into that almost... Um, at that precipice of, okay, what do I do next? And I was just thinking, bees, I just have to do something with bees and trees and people and got the, the sticky notes and the big bits of paper and the colourful pens out and came up with four aspects that I would focus on around bees being the central point of that business. So rather than take a, a, um, a classic or traditional approach of being a beekeeper and selling honey, I thought, no, this is going to be about the bees as opposed to the honey. And so I came up with Bee Sweet, which is the, the honey production side of things. And that is distinguished by the fact that I harvest each hive separately and don't mix the honeys. So each super or supers that comes off a particular hive is harvested and compartmentalised and kept separate from the next hive and the next hive and the next hive. And like a, like a, like a fine wine, I suppose, where you have a single estate vineyard or something, then I carefully prepare tasting notes and, and write up food pairing ideas to just make sure that it's, not a spread that is in the supermarket that you just put on toast and every jar tastes exactly the same. Um, along the lines of, you know, that salty Australian spread or something like that, that it's, it, it is always changing. It's always different and it's made by a living thing. And therefore, you know, we should really embrace that and celebrate that. So that was the first component. And then, the next one, drawing on my botanical and um, um, ecological and field skills, is be green. So that is anything from consultations for people to design and um, implement bee-friendly practices and plants in their gardens through to consulting about improving um agricultural environments for enhancing pollination services for cropping and um, biological controls and things like that and biodiversity in the in the farmscape and so the bee sweet and bee green bee keep is around beekeeping lessons and um one-on-one -on -one or small group tuition for new beekeepers in the same way that you might have horse riding lessons if you're a new 
you know, buy a pony. <laughs> it's, the, it's the beekeeping lessons. And that has also morphed slightly, particularly because of the flow hive um, uptakes that it's for, for people who are wanting to learn to keep bees because they've suddenly got a flow hive and realise mm. that, oh, you should still have to be a beekeeper. That, that has been very popular. But on the other hand, it's clients who have acquired a flow hive and then realise that perhaps the bees are going to require more time and investment of their attention than they anticipated but they still really want the bees and they love having the bees and having the bees in their garden and they would never have embraced beekeeping had it not been for this system. Mm. So that then sprang forth the Jeeves for Bees service. I love it, Jeeves for Bees. <laughs> Where I fly in and, and take care of the bees. They, it's still their bees, but I'm their bee butler. Wonderful. And I do the hive inspections and, the, you know, disease checks and, they get the honey and so that that works out really well and because beekeepers love a good pun um the final element that i came up with is bespoke so that's doing um guest not that we're doing so much of that at the moment but um giving talks and presentations to say agribusiness network meetings um uh agroforestry networks um landscape, land care, um, natural resource management groups, schools. Um, and it could be, you know, that high um, intellectual sort of level on, you know, exactly what you need to do and when in a particular cropping environment, right through to a booked event with a community house on making beeswax wraps. Mm -hmm. The whole spectrum. So, yeah, that's um, – and then there's the Meet the Bees experiences, which I, I offer like for people. Hive tours. Yeah, they suit up. We open a hive. They get that fear factor of, oh, my gosh, there's a thousand million singing insects all around me and I think I'm okay <laughs> sensation. Um, and honey sheer teas. Wonderful pages. A twist on the Devonshire tea, but we have honey instead of jam and we have a variety of different hives, honeys and some other honeys to try like a manuka or a leatherwood or something. Um, and so there's a honey menu and people can learn and experience the different flavours and textures. And that's all here at the homestead overlooking um, Lake Notark, which is always lovely when the weather's nice. So, what yeah, that, that side model. of things kept me a bit busy, but yeah. that's obviously um, on pause at the moment because we, we can't have little gatherings. Um, but you've but, developed a, 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 whole, a whole suite of services and, and um, offerings in your business, which is amazing. And I love the name. Um, I love the story behind the name of your business. Would you tell me about the story? Yes, I can. It's, it's quite a tale. And it's something I came across in an old textbook that relates to the geology and, and cultural history of the volcanic plains. And where we are located, which is in between 
two volcanic crater lakes and that complex is called a mar m-a-a-r and the isthmus or the the narrow dividing um, portion of land between those two lakes is a um, uh, almost like a saddle and then up either side of that there's there's a peak and the story that is told based from potentially thousands of years ago by indigenous peoples was that in the lake to our south lake bull and Merai, there was a bunyip and it was chased by local tribes people and bunyips are very very large fearsome not to be um, encouraged creatures so they chased gave chase to this bunyip and he headed north and where we are on the saddle wasn't a saddle back then it was higher ground but the bunyip plowed through in fear and created this gouge where we are and that became known as the middle lip which in the local language is pronounced Bukawarang. And the Bunyip continued on and he traveled further north into the landscape and created a creek. And um, there's a, a small wetland on our property that apparently he tripped and fell and sank into the ground briefly and created the wetland. And so it is absolutely of our place and where we are sighted is the middle lip, Bukawarang. So that became the name of the property and then the name of the, the apiary. And because it's not a written language, it's spoken, oral, there's quite a few spellings of those words, whether it's double U, 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 or double O's or double A's and if it's a WH or a WAA. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll make it look somewhat symmetrical with the lettering, but still enable the correct, correct pronunciation. But of course, even then, it's not all that easy to pronounce. So I came up with a, a little jingle <laughs> that is like, how do you say it? How do you say Bukawaram? Say it sweet. Ooh, ah, honey, yum. Oh, and it good. kind of rhymes. <laughs> Bukawarang. Bukawarang. And so that's where the name came from, from Bunyip, that created, um, changed the landscape and created a gouge between two crater lakes that appeared as a result of volcanic eruptions here in Western Victoria. And... Um, they're not that old, I think five or six thousand years old, geologically speaking. Um, and so, yes, that's where the name came from. It's a beautiful story. Thank you. I love it. It's wonderful. We all love a bunyip. You're listening to She Beak, a podcast for and about women in Australian beekeeping. Find us on Instagram. She underscore Beak, that's S-H-E underscore B-E-E-K, and on Facebook, She Beak. So what do you do differently as a, as a woman in beekeeping in Australia? Um, what do you see as your, the difference in your approach to, to beekeeping? I think first and foremost, I 
very much value and um, engage in a scientific approach to my beekeeping. But I'm also inherently aware that um, as a woman in beekeeping, in what has traditionally been a, um, a field, if you like, that has been mostly um, beekeepers who are male, that initially I was probably quite outside the box in being female and in also being very scientifically and biologically focused to the bees as opposed to, um, I suppose, just managing purely for honey in a very agricultural or farming sense. And that's not uncommon with women in all sectors of agriculture, I find, whether you are raising beef cattle or sheep or um, farming chickens or whatever it is, there's often a different, a different mindset and a um, perhaps a different way of engaging with those animals. So that, that's definitely something I've noticed. And with the, with beekeeping becoming somewhat more mainstream, if it is, as a hobby, I've found myself really well placed to be that educator or um, informer to other new women beekeepers, almost like seeking out a like-minded, approachable um, person who can communicate information that may be complex or, or detailed into an understandable and um, easy to apply format. And I think, so having, having that science and being able to be what I call, or what is known as scientifically literate, so you can read, understand and distill um, high level scientific information, but then convert that into plain English basically and often with the use of examples or analogies to make that concept um, more easy to understand so that's where I see my difference is is being that um, sort of holistic and very science driven approach to bees but in a way that is completely engaging and approachable to new beekeepers and that's really I think where it's at is we, we have to we have to lift you know we all rise by lifting others as as um, the saying goes and I think to be I feel privileged to be in the position where I can um, communicate so much of what I know to people to to bring them along for the journey instead of Perhaps, and it may, you know, have been some people's experience in other um, interactions, perhaps feel that, you know, they don't know enough or they're too scared to ask a question um, mm. or don't realise what they don't know, you know, even to the point of, oh, do you have to register as a beekeeper? You know, there's very, very fundamental things that... I can relate in a, in a, hey, that's okay, now we'll just get you registered, you know, kind of way. Um, 
and especially around the, the biosecurity issues. I see it's so important as not to wave a big stick, but just to be the, the friendly face that says, now, you know, we absolutely have to be looking at this as a priority and we have to make sure that you understand what these things are because bigger things are at stake if you happen to get an outbreak of, you know, things that we all hope we never get. Um, things much, like scarier than, much scarier than a bunyip. Absolutely, yeah. And it's becoming a, a very much an order of magnitude issue because if you look at the number of hives and then the number of beekeepers that have, you know, more than 50 hives or more than 100 hives or more than 500 hives is tiny. Mm. But the number of beekeepers with one hive one or between one and five there. is, you know, about 9,000 or something, or 8,000 in Victoria. Mm. It, it's in the thousands anyway compared to the number of, you know, large-scale commercial beekeepers. And all those single hives are dotted everywhere through the landscape. So, Anna, as a, as a Wean Bee Foundation ambassador, is that part of your message about biosecurity and that being everybody's responsibility? Absolutely. Yes, mm -hmm. definitely. It's like not bringing something into the country if you fly in from overseas that might bring disease or spread a pest. Um, and fully understanding the, the biosecurity issues, but also... Um, uplifting and celebrating our pollinators for what they do for us you know the invisible workforce of millions busy while we're not even looking making sure that we've got apples and pears and cherries and almonds and all sorts of things delivered to our our supermarket shelves um and we haven't had to lift a finger except for obviously looking after the bees and i um Again, it, it's just part of that holistic viewpoint that I have that, you know, it's all connected and the ecology of our, our food systems are basically an ecosystem. And so if we don't have all of the kingdoms of life working in those food systems, be it the pollinators, you know, the beneficial fungi in the soil, um, the, okay, there's some pest animals that eat the fruit, but... Um, then, you know, we're benefiting from having that, from looking after that whole food ecosystem. And so by protecting and um, raising awareness of our pollinators, be it honeybees, native bees and other insects, um, then I think it just, it helps us realise that what pollinators are doing for us is, a, you know, it's in, it's in real time. It's, it's live action. And, it can, you know, it might take... A severe weather event to wash all the nectar out of a crop of flowers or something and suddenly the bees aren't all that keen to visit and the yields might be poor um, so the wean bee foundation i feel it's such a privilege to be an ambassador and it's also um, an amazing opportunity to tell you about a project that we're working on at the moment called powerful pollinators which will be some some more news developing soon but it's some um, some resources to bring the pollinators to the people in terms of engagement and knowledge and learning about pollinators and pollinator friendly plants powerful pollinators i'm going to have to mm. um, contact you again to talk more about that because we're nearly out of time that would be now great 
I'm, yes. I'd really love to do that, Anna. And um, yeah, no, look, I have to, I have to say hats off to you. Thank you so much for volunteering your time and donating your time to, to talk with us. Um, especially since it's going to rain later in the week. And this is probably one of the, the cooler, windier, but clear days where you might actually yes. be able to get out there. And I'm taking up your, your daytime. Um, no, no. Before we go, though, um, when we were chatting to set up our, our conversation today, you said, oh, I won't say I'll check my diary. I'll say I'll check the weather. And I thought that was just a wonderful beekeeper <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> Do you tell yes, everyone else? Oh, it's so true. I'd, um, especially in spring where we might have two or three days of, you know, one really, one okay day, one a bit better day, one awesome day, and then a couple of days of cold change and then, you know, repeat. And so people say, oh, so what are you doing next Wednesday? Can we book this in? It's like, oh, I've just checked the weather because <laughs> I really can't be sure. But, uh, yeah, it it's... um. It, it, as people say about Melbourne, four seasons in one day, and it really is the, the southern, um, south of the Great Dividing Range in Victoria can be, particularly in the west, um, incredibly changeable and incredibly affected by um, the winds, be it from the, the centre of Australia, which in winter they blow icy cold and in summer scorchingly hot. And then... Um, we also have that lovely influence of the Southern Ocean, which blows up beautiful cold, dry air from um, Antarctica. Mm. And sometimes you might even see a penguin blow past. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Anna, that's delightful. Thank you so much. That image of a penguin flying, <laughs> blowing past across the Western Plains. That's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and I, I will contact you again, hopefully, to, to learn more about powerful pollinators. That, that's an absolute date. I'll check the weather and I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, mate. Okay. Thanks, Gabby. Okay, so that was great to have a listen and hear about the bunyips. <laughs> I really enjoyed that part. <laughs> So uh, I hope you enjoyed that, everyone. If you've got any comments or you've got any suggestions or anything you want to chat about, anything at all, if you want to pop a photo up, anything at all, just jump onto our socials. So that's SheBeak, so S-H-E underscore B-E-E-K on Instagram or just SheBeak on Facebook. And what have we got coming up next week? Well, we will be speaking to Catherine Talbot. And she is from Western Australia and she has a little business called Wedderburn Honey. But most interestingly, she actually has been running a program at the Bunbury Prison where they've actually set up an apiary in their market garden set up there. So we're going to have a chat to her about how she went about setting that up and basically how that's been going. I'm keen to hear that. I'm keen to hear all about how you go about setting up a beekeeping program in a correctional facility. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting and um, she actually goes through that in, in quite a bit of detail, that process that she went through to get that going. So, yeah, looking forward to uh, sharing that with you. I'm sure there's quite a lot of work involved in, in that and, um, yeah, that's something that's really uh, been on my mind a lot. So, yeah, this is, this is fantastic. And, you know, I wanted to mention also, Joe. Mm that um, 
we've had really nice feedback from people who are following us and listening to the podcast and that's been really lovely. Thank you so much for engaging with us. Anna gave me some great suggestions for other podcasts that she knows of about bees mm -hmm. and um, one from the US, mm -hmm. one from the UK and one from New Zealand. So I'd like to mention them now. Yeah, sure. The one in the US is from um, an extension, uh, a research extension group that's attached to a, um, a university in Florida. They're called Two Bees in a Podcast and they're really fun. So that's the one from the US. Mm -hmm. um, I've been checking out some of their episodes. The one from the UK I haven't yet listened to, it's called Living Being, mm -hmm. being obviously spelt with two Bs, <laughs> two E's. Yeah. Um, so that's another one that Anna recommends. And then a third from New Zealand, they're called Kiwi Mana. So Kiwi-Mana, M-A-N-A. So I'm wondering whether there are any other really cool um, beekeeping-related podcasts, you know, something to listen to while you're extracting or wiring up those frames or whatnot or just driving out to jobs like it's it's just cool to be able to listen and learn as you as you work yeah and look we'll pop them up on the socials as well and if anyone does have any suggestions please feel free to yeah pop them up as well for us to have a listen to we'd love to hear about that um and just one other little bit of extra news that i've got i'm getting a flow hive oh so exciting yeah so you know obviously i've just been running um standard eight frame langstroth um, beehives to this point um, but I want to see what all the fuss is about so I'm actually going to be setting up a flow hive at home so we're going to document that journey a little bit for everyone so that'll be interesting that'll be cool to to follow your journey and to document the test case yeah absolutely <laughs> all right well we will get going then so thanks again everyone for listening I hope you enjoyed it as I said and, and please feel free to jump on the socials say hi and, and give us some comments we'd love to hear from you have a great week, Joe. See you later. You too, Kathy. See ya. You've been listening to SheBeak, a podcast for and about women in Australian beekeeping. Find us on Instagram. That's she underscore beak, S-H-E underscore B-E-E-K, and on Facebook, SheBeak. Thanks for listening.